As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. So he had this bit of a flattened slug in his forehead and he was bleeding. By this time, the police had been called and he led the police a merry dance for the next four hours with his speedboat all over the harbour. He had had a, a mental breakdown. There's no two ways about it. Try to imagine, if you can, 
Australia, a country built by waves of immigrants keen to carve out their piece of the economic miracle far from the wars and bad weather in the rest of the world. Imagine that Australia emerging shell-shocked from a sudden, ruthless international pandemic and into a financial crisis the like of which the world has never seen before. Civil unrest sweeps the globe. Extremists take power in many countries and ordinary people find themselves considering new philosophies in their search for answers. Some people find themselves considering extraordinary actions in the name of survival. I'm talking, of course, about Australia in 1935. The country was in the depths of the Great Depression. It was between the two world wars. And although it was over a decade since the Spanish flu pandemic killed 50 million people worldwide, Australia was in the grip of a polio epidemic. There were several waves of polio that swept Australia over the 1930s, 40s and 50s, and a number of periods during which schools, pools and theatres were closed, and travel restrictions and strict quarantine measures were introduced. On top of all of that, the country was mesmerised by true crime. Can you believe it? Our story today was Australia's first true crime sensation. It takes place in Sydney, when two rich men from the right side of the harbour, born to privilege, meet two men from the wrong side of the harbour, born on the other side of the world. Oh, and there is another bloke who just had a creative money-making idea to get him through the winter months. This is Australian True Crime with Michelle Laurie and Emily Webb. Come with us as we go beyond the news cycle to find out how people become killers, how people become victims and what happens next. Kevin Ma and Philip Roop have written a fantastic book about this story. It's called Shark Arm. Yes, it really is. Shark Arm. A tattooed arm and two unsolved murders. And they joined me to tell me almost all about it. Yeah, it was very desperate. And, you know, in better times, maybe James Smith wouldn't have done what he did and end up dead. Yeah. So we better track through it, I guess, because we have this situation that, of course, every one of us, I think, has heard this incredible story of a family day at the aquarium. The star attraction, as it is at every aquarium, is the shark. Mm. And on this day, the shark's looking a little bit the worse for wear and is smashing around. And lo and behold, in this cloud of disgusting froth that comes forth from the shark, out comes a human arm. That's what I remember vaguely from this story that I've heard my entire life. But tell us, tell us the story as you see it. How does the story begin? Well, look, I think if we back up to James Smith coming out to Australia, leading a family of nine people with mm. high hopes, he was a, an amateur boxer and he set himself up in boxing here. He wasn't so good at it, but he could take care of himself. And he starts up a, a gym and a stadium at Leichhardt and uh, he runs a little bit of illegal betting on the side. And then he mixes, as they did in, in billiard halls and boxing, with wealthy men. He had a bit of charm and polish himself. And he starts to move to the other side of the harbour. And he gets in, in uh, with Reginald Holmes. And Can I just ask, before, before you go on, I'm not from Sydney. I, I don't really, I don't understand what that means, the sides of the harbour. Like, what side <laughs> is Leichhardt? What's the other side? 
Well, look, the, the north side of the harbour is generally the wealthy side. Once you pass uh-huh. that bridge, uh, you're getting out of the inner city and you're getting into an area where people have and always have had front row seats on the harbour and a lot of money and and these are the kinds of people he got in with. Kev, you know a lot about the background. I do. Stenner, Both um, men inherited their businesses from their family. Reg Holmes' father was a boat uh-huh. builder and Reg took over his business and they built launches and luggers and they were also the first to build speedboats in Australia. And Stannard inherited his father's business, which was a basically you describe it as a water services business. It started off by taking people to and from boats that were anchored in the harbour and they also carried some other items which may have a question mark next to them. But they were the first to the boat to pick up people that wanted to come ashore and then the, and took them out as well. Both of these men were well-recognised, successful businessmen. They seemed to be generally liked. They, they knew the harbour extremely. They were very well known around the harbour. They both belonged to prestigious harbour clubs and also Sydney businessman clubs. They had integrity written all over them and Phil described them very well in the book as they were Sydney Harbour royalty. They were highly regarded, but not in all circles. The police, for example, had a completely different view of them. They were always rumours and stories about Holmes and Stannard being associated with criminals, receiving stolen goods and also in on insurance scams. So there were two sides to these men and that's what makes them very intriguing. But the the side of their, their business side, their external persona engendered trust. They were trustworthy people of high integrity and that's where people like Jim Smith came to grief. Well, we know in Melbourne, of course, that the docks are always associated with certain criminal elements. And I guess back in those days, before air travel, the docks were absolutely the only way to smuggle anything in and out of a country. So if your business was boats, that would always be, uh, you know, a possibility, a temptation, wouldn't it? Opportunity. There would always be money to be made. Yeah. Absolutely. They were the baggage handlers of the day. They had the opportunity, they had the boats to meet boats that came into port or even meet them offshore just outside of Sydney Harbour. And they were in the prize seat to be able to, at a distance, let their crews do what their crews of their boats, their launches wanted to do. And they took a cut of that. But they were in on many things. They were so highly respected in boats If they got a boat, they could get it revalued by a person because of their reputations and really just name their price on what that boat was worth. And no one doubted them. Um, And one particular boat that Jim Smith was involved in, he looked after this boat for them, was called the Pathfinder. And they insured the Pathfinder for a huge amount of money over what it was really worth. And then they got dummy owners in so that these respectable businessmen were able to step back and do their business without getting involved. And they had dummy owners and people working for them so that they never got their hands dirty. And Jim Smith was offered £500 to sink the Pathfinder, which they had insured for roughly about £8,500. In today's money, looking at something like half a million dollars. And so he was to get money to take it offshore, off Sydney, off Terrigal, which is north of Sydney, and sink it, and then claim that it just sank in a natural way. 
But Jim Smith bungled the thing. He took the boat out. He was intending to smash some pipes in the bottom of the boat and let water in, which he did. But the water came in very slowly. And when the dawn came, he came up on deck ready to leave the boat, thinking it would just sink and that would be the end of it, to see a coastal steamer coming down the coast, a small one, and very close to him. Oh, no. And the captain hailed him and said, are you all right? By this time, Jim's in the boat in a little dinghy rowing for shore, (laughs) and he panicked and he didn't answer. He just kept rowing. So... From the point of view of the captain and the crewman on that boat, immediately they were suspicious. What was this man doing rowing away from a sinking boat? And away from their rescue when they tried to rescue the guy. (laughs) Yeah. So he was so, it was a terrible, terrible mistake. So anyway, he gets back to shore. They reported that to the police. It's a bungled attempt and he's lost them all. The, the pathfinder did go to the bottom of the sea. He's lost this, these two wealthy businessmen, all this money. He nearly kills himself getting towards shore. He gets a fraction of that money and he's so angry, very, very angry. The police actually got involved in that one, didn't they? Was that the first time the police kind of came sniffing around that group of people in a serious way or that insurance fraud operation? It is the first time the police were on it, yeah. He, he bungled it completely. One of the syndicate went to the insurance company and said that it had sunk, thinking that they may be able to get away with it. Mm. The insurance guy thought it was very strange that only one man was aboard when it sank. And he called the police and then they put two and two together and then the insurance company person saying there's something wrong here. So that was investigated. They dropped the claim. Jim's nearly killed himself. And he is so angry when they only give him a small fraction of what they intended. And we believe that I this think is the genesis that stage, of the murder. Smith had no time for Stannard and Holmes, and he was basically invited to talk once and then twice and then several other times with Detective Sergeant Matthews. And this is really where Smith went too far, and this soon became known that Smith was talking to police and that it all started with the Pathfinder. Had this not happened and he didn't have that conversation with, that initial conversation with Detective Sergeant Matthews, he would have survived the, the whole thing. Ah, so he became he an informant. Yeah. But it wasn't the first time. time. Going back into the early 30s, he had a run-in with a sergeant in Balmain and he uh, cut a deal with a Detective Sergeant there. So... Smith was known on a couple of occasions to be talking with police and this was his eventual undoing. How important do you think the class difference is in this story? How much did that play into the differences between the men? Because they'd had a blue before, or a couple of blues beforehand, hadn't they? Smith didn't really bow and scrape to these guys as much as they would have liked him to, did he? No, he, um, he knew he had something over them because he had seen what they were doing on the harbour. He knew what they were smuggling and he had all the info on both these men. And he saw, you know, from a poor London background, he saw these people prospering with impunity. They just didn't get caught. And here he was, he'd nearly lost his life for them and he thought, we'll get these bastards back. And he had a mate called Paddy Brady. Enter Paddy Brady one of Australia's greatest forgers who learned his trade in prison and was very cultivated. He could quote Shakespeare and he wore a bow tie. 
he was quite a dapper person. I can't help but love Paddy. I cannot help but love Paddy. And I know I shouldn't, but everything yeah. about he just lights up the page for me, Paddy. Every everything he does, it's, it's not clever, but it just I think he's like straight out of central casting, Paddy. He is. I mean, I, I think our favourite part of the book is he was arrested in Hobart on a he was forever forging. He never learned his lesson. A guy was brought before him in a lineup. And the guy was sort of umming and ahhing, and he said, come on, mate, yes or no? <laughs> so, little little gems like that. Yeah, you do like Paddy. And so Jim and Paddy got together and thought, we've got it over these silver tails. We know mm. so much about them. Jim, you didn't get paid fully for sinking the Pathfinder. We're going to induce Mr. Holmes into the forgery business. So... They organised writing a cheque and forging his signature, telling him they were going to do it, and the bank actually did ring him up, and that was the beginning of it. Holmes saw that, in fact, Paddy was a good forger and he had forged his signature perfectly. But over the months uh, leading up to the murder, the amounts that these two men, Paddy and Jim, his mate, decided to put the pressure on homes for increasingly big amounts and leading up to the events of Anzac Day in the pool, 1935, Mm. they finally presented a cheque to him that they were going to forge with one of Holmes' business associates for a whopping £625. Wow, that's that's like $58,000. $58,000. Wow. Yeah. So these are his clients. They're they're trying to, well, they're they're kind of, they're blackmailing him and saying, get your clients' signatures. We're going to rip off your clients. That's exactly right. There was a subtext there when we say, look, we're going to introduce you to this thing. We can all make a lot of money out of this. But the words that weren't being spoken was, you've got to do this or else because we've got so much on you. And I love that too. There's this constant kind of power switch, isn't there? It's like in the beginning, it's these rich guys who think that these poor guys will do mm. anything because they're so desperate, yeah. right? They need the money. But what they don't understand is that the poor guys are in working for them are finding out everything they're doing. And so they're gathering intelligence mm, to exactly. which to blackmail them. Yeah. You know, so they end up, they're in control now, but then there's this constant mm. swinging back and forth, isn't there? Yeah, exactly. They weren't the sharpest tacks in the pack, were no. they, Stannard and Holmes? I mean, they Stannard was a, you know, like he was bright and cheery and everyone down at the wharves liked him because he had a lot of money and he was generous and he he controlled the boats and and Holmes was a different kettle of fish. He was very nervy, a perfectionist. He liked building boats and didn't particularly like people all that much and um you know, he he was he liked building luxury boats, but both of these men. A couple shared of things the started to go wrong between Holmes and uh, Stenard uh, in 1933 and 34. They started to drift apart, and there was a distrust forming between them. And for, for two people who were in some ways quite vulnerable to the law, this this distrust was problematic. And I think the person who sussed that out most clearly was Stannard and 
perhaps he was hoping that Holmes would somehow disappear because Holmes increasingly was a drunken and probably addicted to at least one drug, probably cocaine. His health was not in, in good shape and he was very, very vulnerable. And that was that was what was led to his death. And um, that's a, a story in itself. <clears throat> What came between Paddy and Jim, though? Four men, two groups of two, who started out thick as thieves in their little twosomes, and then they both drifted apart and became distrustful of each other. What happened between Paddy and Jim? Well, look, I think Jim's drinking probably. He was erratic. He was never a violent drunk, but he was, you know, like he would certainly protect himself. But Jim's informing, and and we have to put informer in 1935 in its context down at the wharves, and informer was the lowest of the low dogs. And by the end of 1934, practically everyone around the waterfront knew that Jim Smith was an informer. His wife had even told Holmes that he needed 50 pounds because some men had come to try and shoot him because he had informed on them uh, in a forgery case that he'd been involved in with Paddy. So that caused all sorts of mayhem. The fact that he was an informer caused some grief. But nonetheless, by the end of 1934, Jim was drinking heavily Everyone knew he was an informer. Around the wharves, everyone was on the tape because in desperate times, everyone had their little fiddle. And an informer was the most, you know, to bring the eyes of the authorities down on them, he had to be got rid of. So his his days were numbered by the end of 1934. And I think Paddy could sense that. He doesn't seem to have known it, though, does he, Jim? No. Repeatedly. When he thought he was going on this fishing trip, he invited his brother, whom he loved very much. He invited another friend. He seemed to be really happy and keen to go on this fishing trip. Yeah, he uh, he had had threats, but he he knew he was with Paddy. After the break, we leave Jim Smith and Paddy Brady for a moment so the authors of Shark Arm, Philip Roop and Kevin Ma, can take us to the Coogee Aquarium as it existed in 1935. It's quite something. Thank you to our patrons for sticking with us in these economically challenging times, including Darren and Kate Hawke, Melissa Boss, Kate Norton, Christy Malone, Emma, Bridget Johnston, Veronica and Rochelle Hanna. You can become a patron and prevent me from getting creative like the Coogee Aquarium you're about to visit by going to patreon.com forward slash Aust True Crime Pod. There's a link on our Facebook page. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Coming up on Australian True Crime, the two Harborside Silvertails, Holmes and Stannard, face some bumps in their friendship, to say the least. But first, Philip and Kev take us to the Coogee Aquarium and introduce us to its creative proprietor, Bert Hobson. If we can imagine an Olympic pool, 50 metres long, deep end and the shallow end, that's all they were, tiled, nothing in them, no coral or anything like that. So when it got too cold to drag in the bathers, they got the bright idea of putting animals in there. So they put fish in there. At one time, they even put a sea leopard and then these very big sharks. 1935, just as April, it's getting cold, they decide we've got to get ourselves a big shark. So Bert Hobson has a boat. He takes the boat off Coogee Beach where the aquarium baths were, and he baits a line with mackerel, a number of lines. He left them there overnight, and then he came back in his trawler the next morning, and there was an enormous tiger shark on, the, on one of the lines. And what it had done is a smaller shark had come along and it had taken the bait, and then this gigantic shark, 4.4 metres, had come along and crunched into the body of the smaller shark that was on the line. And then that shark, the big shark, had got itself tangled in the lines and then exhausted itself during the night on these fixed lines. And when Hobson came back the next morning, this monster was exhausted. So it was able to be dragged into Coogee Beach. They dragged it on a tarpaulin across the sand, a whole lot of men, across the road, through the entrance to the baths and dumped it in the pool. And then the shark swam around listlessly for a couple of weeks. They advertised feeding times, but the shark didn't want to eat all that much. But it certainly was an attraction. It certainly did the job and drew the crowds. But by Anzac Day, where there were so many people in town because it was the 20th anniversary of Gallipoli, the late afternoon, as you said at the beginning, the shark had been listless but suddenly came to life, started to thrash around the pool, stopped at the deep end, sank to the bottom, 
up came the sludge and a foul stench and floating in the middle of the, uh, the, the scum was bits of a rat, a bird, a fin of a shark, lumps of shark. About 12 and people were there. Know. It was late in the afternoon. And one of the guys that was there, his name was Narcisse Young, and he was a proofreader at the Sydney Morning Herald. So when the police came down, the doubting police, can you just imagine the conversation in the car as they're going down the hill from Ramwick Police Station? They reckon that a shark's vomited up a human arm. It's got to be a joke. It's got to be a prank or something. That's, this can't be true. But no, Cease Young put straight and said he was standing there and he saw it all happen. And there's no doubt about the, the fact that he brought up the scum, a bird, a rat, and a human arm. There's no doubt about that. And they brought in a professor from Sydney University who was also a surgeon, but he's also has done a, a lot of particular study into attacks on humans by sharks. Henke concluded that the arm had not been bitten off by a shark. It wasn't a result of a shark attack. Uh, it hadn't been removed surgically. It had been hacked off by a, a knife uh, or a sharp instrument, probably a knife, and it was quite likely hacked off from a dead body. So it was pretty clear that the police had a, a very bizarre murder investigation on their hands. And it was in such good condition, wasn't it, that not only could they see this tattoo very clearly, but they could get fingerprints. Well, look, it was amazing. When the shark, when the big shark had taken a bite from the smaller shark, the arm must have been in the stomach of the smaller shark. Oh, so the bigger oh. shark took a virtually ate the, the smaller shark plus the arm. Huh. Then in the aquarium, the theory goes that with the lights and the different atmosphere and everything, the, the shark was traumatised. All the sharks that they ever exhibited died within two weeks. So it was a, a common reaction. They were traumatised, they stopped eating and they stopped digesting. Mm. So the added protection was that this arm was inside the carcass of a smaller shark and so normal digestive juices had not penetrated into the arm. So mm. it had a perfect tattoo on the forearm of two boxes boxing and its fingerprints were pretty well perfect and they did a very bizarre thing for those days, one of the earliest methods of taking cutting off the the, the skin of the uh, fingerprints, where the fingerprints are at the, the tip of the fingers, and then pressing cotton wool behind them and getting a perfect set of prints. And it was about the second time that that had ever been done. So it was uh, James Smith had a you know a bit of a, a record from his days of illegal betting, and so the fingerprints matched his. His wife identified the tattoos as belonging to him. So definitely James Smith and definitely a murder. There were a lot of people, though, who knew that tattoo, weren't there? There was a really moving story that you shared in the book from a man from England who had boxed with him or actually trained him as a boxer yeah. as a young man. I just found that really moving, particularly coming from a man in those days when he said, I boxed with him and he was a great boxer and all that, it was very masculine in the beginning of this statement. And then he said, and, and Jim Smith was the best man in the world. And I just yeah. thought, oh, God, that's heartbreaking. To hear about a body part yeah. 
of someone that you respect so much and that you clearly love and yeah. have a lot of affection for, a mate being found. It, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. It was a very moving it story. It is a moving story. And you were commenting on the strength of the women. Uh, Paul mm. Gladysmith, uh, the wife, yeah. having to go mm. and identify the um, the tattoo, which by that stage was um, the only thing that remained of the arm after they did all their tests were was the tattoo and some flesh that was, you know, to see your loved one, to see that that was the only thing that remained of your loved one, the horror and the sadness and the fear that would have engendered, you know, it, I mean, the whole thing is sort of Dickensian and ghastly and, Edgar Allan Poe in its, the coroner even said, of all the sharks in the ocean, that this one had to be caught and then put in an aquarium. You know, the odds of the thing uh, even happening, even being revealed, and then the ghastly nature of it, the tattoo and the flesh, and it's pretty grisly. It is. And I got the sense too that these women were not aware of yes, their no, husbands' work. I, I think, I think, um, Let's take, uh, seeing we're talking about Gladys Smith, uh, about a year before he died, she took out a uh, a life insurance policy on him. There was oh, okay. an occasion <laughs> where she was walking with him along the street and a man named Stanley Watson came up. Jim asked Gladys to walk on and Stanley Watson poked a gun into his stomach and said, a man ought to blow your guts out. And that was because Watson believed he had informed on him. So he went back with Gladys and he told her then what had happened. So I forgot poor, about that. I forgot poor, that she knew about the Gladys Smith, I, I think she lived a couple of years in fear of what was going to happen to her husband. As far as Patty Brady's wife goes, all she had was all she could do was pray for him. She was a devout Catholic and um, prayed that he would change his ways. Poor old Grace Brady knew nothing. But <laughs> one stage, followed Brady along. Said, oh, my whole family think, thought I'd, I'd gone straight when I was pulling all these little uh, Swifties down at the market. She said, if only they knew the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Brady. So, again, this this brings me to one of my favourite phases of Brady's story. It's terrible of me to say this, but around the time that we think Jim expired or someone expired him, Brady is driving, he's in taxis, he's all over Sydney, he's back and forth to the Holmes residence and all that. He's whirling around in a suit with no socks, he's not shaving, he's not wearing a shirt under his suit jacket. Crazy. He's getting in a taxi and insisting that no one looks at him and he's pulling down the shades to try and make the taxi dark because someone else is in the taxi. I mean, it's just, could he have looked any more suspicious? He he, He couldn't have looked any more suspicious. He told the taxi driver that he had to be in Sydney by 7.40 because it was a matter of sickness. And then he told him, well, maybe we shouldn't go there first. We'll go. And then he took him on a bit of a detour. And look, he, he was a man scared stiff. He didn't know if he was doing the right thing by going to see homes. And what about the, when they were they were renting the, the cottage, him and the wife, poor Grace, but he keeps kicking Grace out for hours at a time. And then when the landlord comes back after these few days, they've been renting this mm-hmm. cottage, there's a couple of rugs missing. And he did hire a boat a couple of Indeed times to take it out. Yes. He hired the launch 
and took it out. And then in the days after his mate was last seen, he went around with a taxi driver, this these stupid taxi <laughs> things, and he bought a trunk and he bought a mat. And then they took the trunk and the mat back to the hotel. The taxi driver, he asked the taxi driver to help him carry the trunk down a little bit into the house. And then this trunk was noticed by the, the, the guy who owned the place when Brady left that it had replaced a bigger trunk that was there when he'd rented the cottage. The mat, he noticed that the mat had been changed. So uh, there were ropes missing from the boat and an anchor, small anchor missing from the boat, and the place was scrupulously clean. I mean, that is enough evidence to really get him in court on trial for his life. What The theory the police came up with was they had had an argument and Brady had killed him, cut him up, the arm wouldn't fit, put the rest of the body in the trunk, the arm wouldn't fit, so the arm was cut off. Then he took the trunk out in the launch at night and then pushed the, the trunk overboard. And what, dropped the arm with the anchor? Well, no, he held on to the arm. This was the theory. He held on to the arm to show he, he wanted to continue blackmailing Holmes. Oh. So he continued on with the arm to, and he had Jim Smith's uh, bag. Uh, but uh, he came back to the cottage replaced the trunk, which must have been bloodied. The mats must have been bloodied. He also bought a mattress for the bed and replaced that. So you don't go replacing things in a, tr- in a cottage unless, unless there's a lot of blood around. So that was the theory. So they, they started to look for the trunk in Gunnamatta Bay and the area just around the cottage and found nothing. That was always the fly in the ointment of the case against Paddy Brady because the circumstantial evidence is certainly there and he never gave any explanation for his actions and those he did were soon proved wrong by the police. You could see why the police were sure they were onto the right man with Paddy Brady. And then Holmes, of course, completely lost his bundle, uh, as you were saying before. Reg Holmes was going to be the police star witness at the inquest into Smith's death. The police expected him to say at the inquest that Paddy Brady had come to him on the morning of the 9th of April and told him that he'd killed Smith and bundled his body into a trunk and tipped the trunk into the ocean. With the idea that, like, you're, you know, and you're yeah, next I, if you don't yeah, keep absolutely. giving me money. Was that and the... that, of course, that would have sent Brady straight to trial. He had had a, a mental breakdown, there's no two ways about it, after the Pathfinder debacle when that didn't sink. Once Brady and Smith started to blackmail him, he started to go to pieces. But the, the incident on the harbour was quite incredible. Just before the inquest, he asked one of his employees to bring a speedboat around. The speedboat was brought down below his mansion. Holmes appeared in an overcoat. It was about seven o'clock in the morning, just as people were arriving at work on ferries and everything like that. He was drunk. He got in the speedboat. He took off down the harbour and just off Point Piper, the wealthiest place in Sydney, he stood up in the boat, put the gun to his forehead and pulled the trigger and was blown backwards into the water, over the toppled over the speedboat and uh, fell backwards into the water. 
but the water revived him, was freezing, and he clambered back onto the boat. And what had happened was that he had pressed the gun directly at his forehead to the thickest part of the skull, and the bullet had, had flattened itself but not penetrated the skull. So he had this bit of a flattened slug in his forehead and he was bleeding. By this time, the police had been called and he led the police a merry dance for the next four hours with his speedboat because he, could, he was a master driver all over the harbour. And finally, he was brought back in. He was taken to the wharf and the police, instead of taking a man who had just shot himself in the head, to hospital, they took him to Central Police Headquarters. <laughs> they, they would have had to drive past at the hospital there in Macquarie Street to take, get to get to the police station. Yeah, <laughs> it was such a valuable. It was the most it was desperate an opportunity moment they of truth miss. in Holmes's life came on the afternoon of June the eleventh, nineteen thirty-five, when he went to see his solicitor. And the solicitor told, after Holmes had told him all the details, the solicitor said to him, at the inquest, based on what you've just told me, it's highly likely that the coroner will recommend that you go to trial for being at least an accessory to the murder of Jim Smith. So this would have been shattering news for this man who was fastest integrating anyway. After that conversation, he went back to visit Stannard at Stannard's boat shed and a conversation was had and what was said in in that conversation, I guess we'll never know, but it's possible that there was some agreement reached. Holmes then went home, I had some dinner, went to bed for a while and then asked his wife to wake him up around about 7.30 or quarter to 8. She does that, he gets into his car and drives across the bridge, back across the bridge to the south side and parks it underneath the Harbour Bridge in Hickson Road. And not long after that, he's shot dead. Someone shoots him from the side, fires three bullets into his side and that was the end of Reginald Holmes. So because of his suicide attempt, he has suddenly put himself in the frame as maybe being involved actually in Jim's murder rather than being another victim of Paddy's. And then he goes over and visits his rich mate and then before you know it, he just drives himself to this deserted, lonely spot at night time in the badlands of South Sydney (laughs) on the south side of the bridge and sits there until he's shot in the head. Yeah. When else would he ever go and sit there in his car? Well, look, he, the theory that we and others have come to, which um, I'm sure is correct, is that um, there was something involved in the actual killing of Jim Smith that he knew if he sat in a, in a dock and was quizzed by a really good barrister, he was such an unstable person, that he probably wouldn't be able to help himself and he might just spill the beans. Now, we won't reveal what those beans were. Do you reveal them in the book? Oh, yes, absolutely. Oh, yeah. okay. And um, in terms of the final conversation, I find that the most fascinating. Here, is, here are two mates who, from respectable families who have known each other for years and years and years, and one convinces the other that probably for both their goods and their family's goods, it's best if he allows himself to be killed for insurance purposes, for reputation, 
so he doesn't blab and, and, and cause others harm, maybe it's best to end it now. So it was a short, we know it was a short conversation, maybe 10, 15 minutes, but what was said convinced Holmes that there was no future. His life was at an end. So when he arrived in Hickson Road, he was found by the police early in the morning and he was in an attitude in the car with his his knuckles on his knees and it was as though he was, he was waiting for death. He was in a, a position of ease so that there was no sign of a struggle. That was the impression that the police got, that he was waiting for it to happen. So not only were the police now looking for who killed Jim Smith, they were trying to understand who killed Reginald Holmes and why and how were the two murders connected. I'm assuming Paddy's alibi out the wazoo. Well, he's uh, Paddy, uh, luckily, at this stage, is in a Hobart jail on a forgery charge. Paddy did go to trial. Even without Holmes as, as a witness, he did go to trial. The, the police case uh, was wholly circumstantial and they'd lost their star witness. He wasn't, Holmes wasn't there to tell happened. his story yeah. or the alleged story that uh, Patrick Brady told him, so the case was pretty weak. I know that you have saved some fascinating details for those of us who are going to buy the book, and I'm so glad that you did. But can you tell us, like, who survived? What happened? Did Patty go on? Did, did Grace's dream come true? Did Patty come good and embrace Jesus no. in his heart? Look, what happened? Look, in, in a uh, word, no. No. In, in, yeah. No. I'm shocked. As, li- as late as uh, the 1960s, Paddy was still forging checks. He was irrepressible <laughs> and he never learned. He never succeeded. He was always as poor as a church mouse. He went to jail uh, further two or three times. In one trial, he actually didn't want to pay a barrister and he represented himself <laughs> and he got up in front of court and he managed to make the trial last six weeks. What you know, Stannard, Stannard uh, before this April 25 happened, Stannard's name was everywhere. Stannard was, in all the newspapers, he was a very successful sports uh, sailor in yachting competitions on the harbour. He's well known after 1935. Stannard's name was nowhere to be found. He really, truly went to ground. And then he decided in the middle 50s to go to California to live with his, where his daughter was living in California and he took up American citizenship and spent the rest of his life there and he died in 1987. So he was the oldest survivor. Everyone, he outlasted everyone else. He knows exactly what had happened. And someone who was related to an employee of Stannard contacted us. This is only a few weeks ago and made a statement which reinforces our theories of what actually happened. This was taken from a recollection of a conversation she had with her grandfather, who was a Stannard boat driver, who had some startling revelations about what happened on the night of Jim Smith's murder with one of Stannard's boats. Thank you to authors Kevin Marr and Philip Roop. Their book, Shark Arm, is about an horrendous crime, but there's no doubt the book is as charming and well-researched as they are. We've really only scratched the surface of the story today, so there are lots of good reasons for you to get a copy of Shark Arm for yourself. If nothing else, it's a comforting reminder that our recent ancestors faced challenging times, and this too shall pass. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. 
We'll be back next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. 
Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a QA. and a If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a QA and a with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.